Hello and welcome to Data Radicals. On today's episode, Satyan sits down with Guy Scriven. Guy is a journalist for The Economist, covering technology in the U.S. In his tenure at the publication, he has served as a researcher and climate risk correspondent and has grown his affinity for telling data-driven stories. In this episode, Satyan and Guy discuss the role of data in journalism, instilling a culture of debate, and the unsexy but critical side of AI. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Successful companies make data-driven decisions at the right time, quickly, by combining the brilliance of their people with the power of their data. See why thousands of business and data leaders embrace Alation at Alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. Today on Data Radicals, we have Guy Scriven, U.S. Technology Editor at The Economist. Guy joined the publication in 2010 as a researcher and has written for the Britain Business International, Europe, Asia, and Finance sections. Prior to his current role, Guy served as the Climate Risk Correspondent, Southeast Asia Correspondent in Singapore, and worked on the Britain Desk. Guy, welcome to Data Radicals. Thank you so much for having me. So for those that are not familiar, maybe start by telling us about The Economist. What is it and how does it differ from other periodicals? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, The Economist is a kind of media organization. The kind of core of it is a weekly magazine. I guess some of the ways in which it's pretty different is that it's pretty old. I think we've been running now for 185 years. And the thing that most people notice first is that we don't print bylines. So with most daily newspapers, you'll have a little bit under an article that that tells you who wrote it. We very rarely print that, basically. And the thinking behind that is that it's a way for the kind of magazine to to speak as one. And so that's kind of external reason. And the internal reason is it removes a lot of the politics around whose name comes first in the byline and who comes after the article in the little bit that says additional reporting from. And so colleagues who have worked at at kind of daily publications and, and The Economist do tend to say that they kind of prefer it. It, it. it creates a bit more of a sense of camaraderie. What I find interesting about the periodical in that sense is that it's, in some sense, it like sort of has an, is an editorial first mindset. I mean, there's an economic perspective on the news. And so less than reporting the news, it's commenting on the news. And yet, when you look at your traditional periodicals, whether it's Newsweek or the New York Times, the byline is heavily featured where the idea is that we're reporting on the news and it's just the facts. Here, you've got an editorial magazine where it's literally the opposite that's true, which is that the names are hidden, but it's the opinion that shines through as a single voice. I would imagine forming that single voice is pretty hard in a pretty large institution where things are constantly changing. What is the process that you go through to get to that single voice? And are there design principles or publishing principles that are held by every single one of the writers? So the process is essentially lots of meetings, right? So in a sense, almost the most important part of the the weekly magazine is what we call the leaders, which are the kind of editorials. And it's five articles, which are the kind of what we think about the world as a magazine. And the process for getting to that is there's a kind of handful of meetings at the end and the beginning of the week where there's a kind of live and open debate about all these topics. So we had a discussion about well, how to think about open AI. We obviously lots of discussions about Trump recently. And so 
every one of those articles behind that is not only a kind of whole bunch of reporting, but also a, a kind of internal debate about how The Economist should think about this. And The Economist was founded on, on essentially kind of free trade principles. And that is basically at the heart of a, a lot of the, the way that we view the world. So we are in favor of kind of globalization and free trade and further to that of competition. And a lot of the ways in which we view the world and the opinions that we form about what's happening today are based on those liberal principles. And it's also kind of not the case that necessarily everybody in The Economist agrees with every single opinion that we have, but it's up to the editor-in-chief to decide what our line on day-to-day events are. And that line is basically comes from a kind of long debate about the, the leaders and the leader lines we should take. It's funny because, I mean, for me, I mean, you mentioned that it's based on free trade principles and it was super formative for me. I mean, my initial experience with The Economist was as a high school debater and I did this thing called Lincoln-Douglas debate. And side to that would do this thing called extemp, which where you would sort of be asked some arbitrary question, like today's version would be, what are the implications of Sam Altman's proposed ouster on AI development going forward? And you'd have to like prepare for 30 minutes to give a seven minute speech. And The Economist would be the one publication that would actually tell you what to think. And so in some cases, I sort of, it started me down the path of then measuring economics and becoming an analyst. And so it, in some ways, if like journalism is the first cut of history, it almost feels like The Economist is a free market version of a, of a second cut. And so I've always appreciated that, like there's a clear perspective. And yet if you buy into that perspective, or even if you don't, it gives you a way to think about current events or a framework to think about current events, which is uh, always quite helpful. And it takes it through the economic lens, which is obviously for many of us perhaps the most important one. How did you get there? I mean, did you always know that you wanted to be The Economist as a journalist? Is this a dream job or did you happen upon it after some consideration? Yeah, I mean, it is a wonderful job in, in you know, in many ways. I get to speak to loads of interesting people and have time to, to, to kind of think and write about things and to kind of try to come up with new ideas and, and frame debates. It wasn't something I necessarily always wanted to do. I think out, out of university, I knew I wanted to kind of write. I basically worked for The Economist all my life, except for one job I did straight out of university, which was writing kind of market industry reports for a small company in London. It was essentially kind of a bit of a sham in that their business model was to get loads of graduates to write these basically pretty bland reports based usually off lots of looking at Wikipedia and the internet. And then they had an enormous sales team that would push these reports onto people. You know, it's one of those, you get an executive summary and you don't actually get to see what the kind of actual detail is and the level of expertise of the author until you actually pay for the product. I did did that for a few months. And in lots of journalism, you get a point in an article or a business article and it'll say, according to, you know, whatever organization, the oil and gas pipeline industry is worth however many billion per year. So so the, the, the main kind of output of these reports was that figure, but the, the way in which you got to it was not nearly as rigorous as someone like McKinsey or Bain would do it. So I did that for about, about nine months. And, and then basically kind of an internship in the research department, The Economist, came up. And I didn't get it. But a year later, they called me up and said, look, there's another opening. Come on, work for a few months. And after that, I essentially managed to, to stick around and managed to go slowly write more and more. At some point after that, we had a data team, we created a data team, and I worked for that for a bit because I was quite good at numbers. And then from there, yeah, I worked on the Britain desk, and then I was a Southeast Asia correspondent for a bit. And then I wrote about climate finance, and now I write about tech 
So I'm based in San Francisco and I write about US technology trends, which is completely fascinating. And you're a technology editor, which means you're writing and you're also editing other stories. That's slightly misleading, actually. So it's, it is unfortunately part of the title inflation trend, which has affected all industries. So I don't actually do any sub-editing. I don't look over other people's copy and tweak it and fiddle with it. I'm just a reporter. But increasingly in journalism, and it's not just the economist that does this, people who are basically reporters are given kind of slightly more flattering titles. So you know how, how years ago that this was happening a lot in banks, right? And so there was that thing where like, if Goldman Sachs, a third of all employees, I don't know if it, that was quite the right number. Our vice presidents. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if you're not vice presidents at Goldman, you're no one. It's so very British and journo of you to refer to your title as inflated. I think that's great. I think <laughs> lots of people would give their left arm to work at The Economist. I think it'd be, it sounds like a lot of fun. So you mentioned that you had a stop in data and of course, this podcast is all about data. And I love having journalists on because I, I find that on some level, analytics is an internal journalism job. You know, you're sort of trying to find the quest for some version of the truth inside of a company. What was your stop in data like and what did you do there? And how did you get into it? Yeah, I mean, it was completely fascinating. I, I, I genuinely think it's kind of shaped the, the way I think about journalism now. So when I started work do, doing kind of data journalism rather than journalism journalism, we just started, created a kind of data team. And the idea was to write more stories where the first, the kind of thing that you've identified, which is new and interesting, originates from a database rather than from a conversation. A lot of my reporting now is I go out and speak to a whole bunch of VCs and people in tech, and then out of that, an idea will form. And more or less the kind of way we approach data journalism, at least back then when I was doing more of it, was that the the idea is that you either have a question that you answer with data or you discover a trend that no one's reported about using data. And so it was a kind of slightly distinct thing, even at The Economist, where we're kind of a number heavy newspaper and, and a lot of our reporting is based on data. This was tried to be a distinct thing where the idea or the answer to a question kind of comes originally from a massive spreadsheet rather than a a chat with someone. And what kind of data sets were you dealing with when you were doing this kind of research? Yeah, all sorts back then. There was a lot of trying to get more out of national databases, basically. So like the UK publishes reams and reams of data, as does the US, Europe does loads. And so and at that point, I was doing lots of stuff with the Europe section. So I spent loads of time just trying to work out the best way to kind of get numbers out of Eurostat in an interesting way. And so I spent loads of time doing that. That was a kind of really obvious first port of call. What are kind of government data sets telling us? And then after that, there was a whole bunch of other stories that we tried to do, which were basically trying to find more novel data sets around interesting topics. So I did a long piece about the dark web, which someone else had scraped the dark web, basically this kind of independent researcher, and dumped loads of the internet web page files in a massive database somewhere on a kind of BitTorrent, right? And so I downloaded that, and then I scraped his scraping of the dark web. And the final piece was basically a drug dealers on the dark web are getting ever more sophisticated piece. You could tell from the piece, you know, how sophisticated they were getting. And it was stuff like they were offering specials, Black Friday sales and stuff like that, specials. And yeah, (laughs) which is great. Let's make your Black Friday even blacker. They were doing stuff like lots of quite clever marketing. And you could also get a sense of like who was more successful. So the, the, the whole of the kind of dark web at that point was 
a bunch of websites. And it was a bit like Amazon for drugs, right? So you'd go on and you'd buy your drugs, it would get delivered in the mail, and then you'd write a review. review. And so you knew that the drugs got there, you could kind of confirm by seeing that there were X number of reviews. And so one of the things that we kind of looked at was like the extent to which good reviews help business for, for these guys online, basically. It followed the kind of normal e-commerce pattern. But anyway, we had loads of data on it and it was lots of fun. I got in touch with some of the people on the dock where people were selling these drugs and they told me these kind of strange stories about what they were doing to promote their product. So that was lots of fun. I mean, a colleague of mine wrote this great story about prison tattoos. So there's a prison tattoo database Hmm. Which I th- for for US US criminals, I think the idea is it helps you identify people. I assume that's the idea. But he went into all this detail about the extent to which you can predict an inmate's sentence length based on the kind of tattoos they have. It told you a lot about the kind of underworld of crime and the kind of importance of, I guess, signalling in that kind of environment. But there's this kind of whole group of standard stories where. You kind of go through government data sets and, and, and try to find something new that's happening or, or other kind of data sets. And then there's a whole subset of stories, which are you found this really interesting data set and the topic of which is just inherently interesting. And then you do some analysis on that and try to come out of that with something interesting to say about tattoos or the dark web or some other kind of fun topic. And I think those were the two main buckets of data stories for us. So sort of national, macro, micro data sets that would somehow describe the broader society and then really random data sets that essentially were a story unto themselves. So we at Alation talk a lot about like people building a data culture. And part of that is having people ubiquitously be able to find data and understand the data that they find and then trust the data that they find and ultimately use the data that they find. It sounds like you're kind of going through that life cycle as well. How did you discover these data sets? I mean, there's no real great data search utility out there, certainly for public data. And I can't imagine even for some of this like really arbitrary random data, like what was your process in discovery for finding these data sets? I guess internally, what really helped is just that we had loads of reporters who used data. Although they weren't data journalists, they would really understand the data of a certain topic. At that point, I think one of the really big stories in the world was the kind of European migration crisis. And we had kind of some fantastic reporters who were constantly focused on this story. And so if I came across an interesting data set about migration, or the, the kind of state of refugees across Europe. I'd drop an email to our in-house expert and, and they would give me a good sense as to whether it's, it's a credible source. If they came across a kind of big data set, which they thought was interesting or we might like to kind of explore, they would send it on to the data team and we would take a look and see if there's anything interesting to discover from that. So it's kind of from having kind of internal people who know the subject really well was a really useful way to kind of check check the credibility of data sources. In terms of discovering new ones, I think it's kind of just what everyone does, right? So it's lots of time on Reddit. There's a whole bunch of kind of newsletters like data. I spend loads of time going over kind of data is plural or data are plural, that that kind of fantastic newsletter. There's lots of bits of time talking to bank analysts and things like that to see, ask what they look into when they try to get this kind of sense of a, an industry and it's, it's, in a sense, it's slightly odd. I feel like there have been loads of attempts to make search engines for publicly available data sets. And every time I've tried to use one, it's not really been satisfactory at all, which feels like a something that ought to be there, but isn't. It feels like a really obvious, useful thing to have, but 
I've never really seen a successful attempt at it. Yeah, I think it is an interesting problem that I've given a lot of thought to too. And I, it, there are a whole host of sub problems which make it hard. In some ways, I've always thought about data, or at least you know, I started thinking about it more like content, like an article on The Economist as an example, and there's sort of a life to the data and it, that life may be long or short, depending on when the data set was captured. And it'll be really interesting to see how that world ultimately evolves. I mean, as you'd find these data sets, how would you know that they were true? I mean, did you ever find a data set that you saw and at first thought was remarkable, but then re- re- realized was absolute bunk? I mean, sometimes when you get into consultancy estimates of of stuff, it starts to get a little iffy. Because they're trying to tell a story or because it's assumptions built on assumptions built on assumptions built on assumptions? Yeah, it's because it's basically a black box is why I feel uncomfortable with it. So, so some large consultancy has given you a number for the total of NVIDIA's supply chain or something like that. And there's just so little... You can call them up and ask them how you derive this number, but you never really get that much detail. Their job is to make assumptions and estimates, but I feel a little bit uncomfortable about that. What you do find is that, and particularly with kind of government data sets, is that it's based on a kind of survey, and the survey doesn't have a very large sample size. At some point, I was looking at lots of kind of UK crime data, and there are two ways to kind of capture that, right? So you can go out and you can ask loads of people, have you experienced crime? And then the other way is to look at kind of police records. And I think the UK government publishes records using both these methodologies. But if you're doing the kind of survey method and say you want to look at are young people experiencing more car breakings than old people, you're getting basically into the kind of crosstabs and the demographics. They may have started asking kind of a thousand people and they do that every year. But then by the time you're looking at 17 to 19 year olds, you're actually only talking about 25 people. And then you're trying to kind of extrapolate a trend from that over a bunch of different data sets. And you kind of get to a point where if the trend looks kind of really weird and something that you kind of not expect, you kind of have to really go back and look at the methodology and think through what am I actually counting here, if you see what I mean. And with the credibility of the economists who have a high standard, which is great because, of course, that's what you'd want. But it does tell the story where like, we think of data as an objective thing, but in fact, on some level, it's just as malleable as any other words might be. Completely. Even things like surveys, which you would think are kind of pretty solid. You get lots of surveys now from which are essentially produced by PR agencies, right, that are there to kind of promote a company or an idea, which is kind of completely their job, but you just don't know how well survey done has been reweighted and how much thought has gone into the kind of back of it. But you're, you're completely right. I mean, I think data is kind of subjective in that sense, that, and particularly if you're trying to create a narrative around data, you just have to be pretty confident that what you're saying is right. I mean, often what I try to do, if I'm not sure about a, a trend or if I've got kind of questions about uh, what a piece of data is sending me, you can just clearly find some corroborating evidence and try to find another data set which would give you a, a similar picture, maybe from a slightly different angle and see if that matches to whatever your findings are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being able to describe the truth in different formats and to look for some corroborating evidence is, I think, the job of an analyst. So within The Economist, it sounds like you actually have a pretty strong data culture. I mean, there's 
and, and this is sort of a podcast that's all about helping organizations evolve and, and build a data culture. And so everybody's running around looking for the truth. There isn't really sort of a bias, as it were, towards any particular perspective outside of just telling a good story and obviously being aligned with free market principles. Tell us about that culture. I mean, you mentioned there's a lot of meetings, but tell us a little bit about the habits of the institution and what strikes you as remarkable. I mean, it sounds like you obviously spent a lot of your career there, so hard to contrast with other places, but you see a lot of other places. I mean, you see and study a lot of different companies. So tell us about The Economist, because I think it's a fascinating place. The, the meeting place is slightly flippant, but you know there is a level of bureaucracy as, as there is with any company. I mean, one of the nice things about the culture is we are kind of open to debate and, and like to discuss kind of ideas. And I think lots of people internally enjoy that. And I think that helps kind of promote thinking about data in, in a healthy way in that the most convincing way to kind of win a debate and to be right in a debate is basically to have kind of really strong data and evidence for whatever you're trying to argue. And so having a culture that is friendly to debate and you know, where people enjoy debating in and of itself, I think, helps people or promotes a culture where people are kind of pretty serious about understanding statistics and getting getting data right. Another thing I think which is kind of unusual and kind of unique to The Economist, so it's not unique to The Economist, but it's something we take pretty seriously is fact checking and having the kind of facts correct, basically. My first job at The Economist was in the research department and a lot of the department's time is about doing fact checking. And so I think everything that we produce from podcasts to films to print pieces to online pieces is kind of fact checked by a team. And if you're even slightly fuzzy about a, a statistic in your copy, they would ask you for clarity and make sure you're kind of sourcing that correctly, which is a delightful privilege to have as a journalist. There's a kind of safety net in a sense, but that it, you also know that if you're not clear and precise about what you write and what you produce, you're going to get questions from the fact-checking team. There is a team that's devoted within The Economist to basically taking a statistic. Like you say, 89% of people who are in profession Y have this habit or whatever the fact happens to be. And some of those facts must be tremendously difficult to verify. Yes. So you send them the kind of source notes. But if they think the kind of survey is incredible, or if they think that you are exaggerating or they think you kind of misinterpreted a piece of data, they will kind of tell you and they, they send a kind of note copying you into the section editor and then it's the editor's call on interpretation, basically. So that process kind of backstops all of our work and forces people to just, from the start of your reporting, just be very upfront about the kind of facts that you have and what you're able to demonstrate and what you're not. So this is obviously pretty interesting territory because in a world of generative AI, you, you get these manufactured or machine authored snippets of text. And you know, I find that ChatGPT is like useful, but funnily enough, over Thanksgiving, one of my friends who's a chef took a whole bunch of recipes and gave the ChatGPT the links to it and said, give me a list of ingredients that I should go buy from the store. And it only got it like 70 or 80% correct. And I feel like that's kind of true for all of what it does. But that fact-checking capability obviously is very sophisticated inside of The Economist. And there's a high bullshit factor, as it were. But that doesn't quite exist in the world at large. And so how do you see that evolving? And how do you see this sort of interplay between technology and data, technology and facts? And where's your head at as far as where the world is and where it needs to go? Because I mean, you've obviously seen the world of tech and AI 
you're seeing all of this data, you sort of spend your career trying to find the truth, whatever that may be. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, the kind of hallucination problem is kind of very much real in ChatGPT. And so it, it makes the kind of technology as things stand today useful for a kind of first draft of something, like marketing copy or something like that, but not fully useful for anything that requires even kind of high to medium levels of accuracy. One thing I think is that, that the hallucination rate, so so the kind of number of inaccuracies per piece of AI-generated text, I think that will basically improve over time. I don't really know whether it will completely get wiped out, but I think my sense is that lots of different technology firms are working on this in lots of different ways and that they have ways to kind of improve that. I mean, what it means for kind of questions about misinformation, I think still really up in the air. One of the things I'm interested in, I guess, at the moment is what this means for kind of cybercrime. I was speaking to a source the other day, and he's a guy who works in kind of cybercrime prevention. He used to work at the kind of FBI and CIA and stuff like that. And he was telling me that he and his family have now come up with kind of internal code words that they use or can use when they're on the phone to each other in order to prevent kind of scams from voice cloning technology, which kind of struck me as completely slightly terrifying. And, you know, so he, he works for kind of a cybersecurity company. So as ever in the technology world, he has skin in the game and all these companies to some extent have to talk their own book. But I mean, he was arguing that we, we might be heading to a world where basically you have kind of less and less trust in lots and lots of the types of communications that we're so used to having now. So kind of people, for instance, answer their phone a lot less than they used to is one of the things that people in cybercrime know because there's now so many scam calls. I don't know about you, Sajin, but I, I, get, I feel like I get kind of four or five scam-likely calls every day. Easily. I mean... And uh, yeah, and I don't answer my phone. I mean, the point this guy was making was, well, that kind of social norm has actually changed in the last few years. And that's partly because of the advance of technology makes these scam calls so much easier to, to make. And, and the worry is that kind of generative AI turbocharges that, I guess, and, and that we get to a place where not only do we not trust random calls we get, but calls that we get from loved ones who sound like loved ones are actually also scams, which is a kind of slightly terrifying where does society go thought. But you started with a relatively optimistic narrative, but closed with a pretty depressing example. <laughs> Since you see all this stuff every day and you're talking to all of these folks, where do you end up? Are you on the side of optimism or skepticism or pessimism? I mean, I guess the natural place for any journalist to do would be skepticism, but yeah, I, I kind of veer from one to the other day to day, kind of depending on who I've just spoken to, I guess. I don't know if that's a <laughs> useful place to be. I think it's basically just impossible to tell at the at the moment. You know, so with any new technology, there's the kind of doomers, right, and the optimists. The optimists like to say, oh, there's always doomers. Even when there was the Sony Walkman, people were terrified that that would change society for the worse. And the doomers like to say, yes, but this time it's different. And the optimist said, well, you said that last time. So I don't know. I don't really know how to think about it. And as I say, here from side to side, kind of day to day, there are certainly elements of a generative AI that do make it feel different from previous technologies. And I guess for, the, for me, the kind of fundamental thing I come back to is like basically all software for, for years and years and years was like, there's a big database and an interface and you interact with the interface and then the interface goes and gets information from the database and gives it to you. And that's like 
Facebook and Google and Amazon, like that's the whole kind of basis of most software to this point. And then, and then generative AI is obviously, there's a database, the machine has read the database and maybe has understood it. And then when you interact with the interface, you get a prediction of what could be in that database. And so and that does seem to be like a fundamental difference in the way software has been previously in the way that software generative AI is. And because of that, basically, I do kind of feel like this time is different, both in the sense of like the risks are high and in the sense that it could also be a kind of step change productivity boost for for businesses. But I think, you know, the the extent to which we have evidence on that is going to be years and maybe decades before we fully know. So what stories are you seeing in terms of actual commercial adoption and implementation? I mean, we all obviously know what's out there with OpenAI and ChatGPT, but what are companies doing and what have you seen? I mean, there's these terrifying stories of like AI-driven drones that the Pentagon seems to want to release out into the wild. Yeah, there's kind of loads of stuff, isn't there? I guess, I mean, what I think about most is the extent to which the kind of enterprise is is absorbing or or, or adopting this. We've had this kind of period since the release of ChatGPT, so about a year, almost exactly a year now, date of recording. And so we've had this long period of kind of experimentation and excitement. And that's been basically marked by the kind of supply side of AI just really ramping up. So you've had loads of model makers releasing new models. You've had the kind of cloud players buying enormous amounts of kind of specialized AI chips. You've had thousands of AI application startups who are going to build on top of the model makers who then use the AI chips from the cloud providers. So you've had this boom in the kind of supply side of AI And now the kind of big question is whether the enterprise demand meets that and kind of what shape it takes. And I think we don't really have a good sense of that until at least the first couple of quarters of next year. And in terms of kind of use cases, you have the kind of generalized use cases. And I think that for me, the kind of most interesting one of those seems to be Microsoft's co-pilot, kind of fleet of co-pilots where... They're really, they're pushing kind of really hard to get these out into the open. And they obviously have this incredible distribution network that they sell into. And that's going to be really interesting to see how useful is it to have a kind of co-pilot in teams that records all your meetings and then summarizes it. And then you can look up whilst you're in Outlook and then use to help make PowerPoint presentations. How useful is all of that kind of stuff? Is that a really big change? Is that a kind of very small incremental change? That will be interesting to see. And then you have the kind of very specific vertical use cases. So Harvey is obviously the kind of legal AI tool that that people are quite excited about. But that's obviously being trained on kind of quite specific legal data. And that helps you kind of do things like write up contracts. Another call I heard of that, I haven't got, I looked into this in detail, but someone was telling me that there's a bunch of, Gen AI startups that basically are going after the kind of procurement market in that if you want to win a government contract, it's an incredibly tedious process and there's loads of paperwork and bureaucracy. And the idea is that they, these startups basically kind of make that really easy for you and they just write up a kind of contract bid in seconds. And if that's true and gets kind of widely adopted, that's a massive change for like the procurement market, which is, I don't know, it's like 40% of GDP and tends to be dominated by companies that have built up a core competency of winning government contracts. That's what they do, as well as provide the software and stuff. But a lot of their kind of moat is 
big wind government contracts. And if the bunch of AI companies turn up and kind of remove that moat, then that could be kind of fascinating battle to watch. It feels like a lot of these use cases are low risk and maybe low excitement factor. I mean, they're not like you go to a doctor and they the robot tells you what medicines to take or diagnoses you for surgery, but it is the early ones feel like they're ones where you can get a lot of productivity gains out of otherwise jobs that might be wrote. Labeling data for us is kind of the same thing. Like there's not a lot of risk. There are some cases where it could be risky, but there there's not a lot of risk in labeling data, but you can go ahead and do that. You mentioned that you wouldn't know about the enterprise adoption cycle for at least the first couple of quarters. What data will you be looking for in order to validate that enterprises are adopting? I mean, where will you be looking for evidence around adoption cycles and the demand side around this AI stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's it's essentially, I think, a case of just monitoring earnings calls and seeing what the really big public listed companies are saying about on the demand side. I think at the moment you can't really do much more than that. So Microsoft, Amazon and Google obviously just have this kind of enormous cloud operations and they are kind of increasingly trying to sell AI products. And so what they say about the kind of demand for their AI products is probably a kind of really good first place to, to look. After that, I mean, there's a bunch of kind of weaker indicators you can start to think through. So I wrote a piece earlier this year where I looked at the kind of S&P 500 non-tech firms and tried to look at a whole bunch of different indicators as to kind of AI to give a kind of sense of AI adoption. And some of the things I was looking at was kind of the amount of kind of job listings these companies are posting that mention AI skills and you can kind of, with that one, that's quite interesting because you can kind of go a bit deeper on that and you can look at exactly what they're asking for and try to get a sense of their sophistication. So if they're asking for people with skills in PyTorch, which is a kind of programming language, or CUDA, which is another kind of programming language people use to use for AI, then that kind of implies that whichever company, like GSK or whichever company is quite sophisticated. But if they're asking for people who just understand OpenAI's API, then it kind of implies that they're buying, not building, right? So you you can kind of get a glimpse in that way. We looked at patent data, which is kind of sometimes helpful, sometimes not. Sometimes really important technologies get patented, sometimes they don't. And so, but it can give you, I think, a sense of what companies are thinking internally. And then you can also look at, I guess, companies that they invest in as well. I think that's quite a useful indicator. So a whole bunch of really big corporations have gone out and bought stakes in smaller AI startups. And I think that's probably a useful way to try to sense how serious a company is about AI and kind of over the next couple of years, what their AI strategy might be. As the tech editor, like what percentage of your beat is AI now today versus everything else? I mean, I would imagine four years ago, crypto was top of mind and maybe the cloud and what is it today? Yeah. So it's maybe 80% AI. I mean, in the last year, I think of the big stories I've written, almost all of them have been AI stories. It's such an incredible moment for the industry and there's so much kind of excitement and activity. It kind of seems strange or foolish not to be thinking about AI quite a lot. And also like the, the story, I mean, I don't know what your sense of this actually, but for me, it feels like the story's moved so quickly. In, in one year, it's, it's, it's kind of changed everything. And I guess 
both the kind of level of interest in it, its its potential changes to like the economy and and the speed at which it's all moved have meant that that it's just kind of has been just a continual focus over the last year or so. And so it's been completely kind of fascinating to watch. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, I do think it's different from some of these other trends because you have innovation simultaneously at almost every level of the stack. I mean, there's just all the way from the chips on up to the various use cases where, you know, there are seven different versions of companies that are trying to chase use cases around medical interaction, for example, like in some cases trying to supplement nurses. And that's amazing to me. And it does feel like there's a whole bunch of other trends, like visual recognition around documents seems to be there. So like you can take a highly unstructured document, all of the text would be recognized. You can then process that. It just feels like a moment where lots is changing and it almost feels like you so much change is happening that you're almost reacting to the change. And so it's hard to keep up. I mean, even for those of us that are in it day to day. Yeah, completely. I've, yeah, it's, it's hard to keep up. And at some point you kind of, you, you get a bit of AI fatigue, having kind of thought about it solidly for kind of seven months or something. You kind of feel like you, you, you need a break, but it moves so fast. I think I get, my sense is that it's slowed a bit now, basically. That there were, I mean, there was that period in between February and May where every day there was an enormous announcement about AI and new models released and new tools announced or something like that. And now, I mean, saving the kind of debacle that OpenAI very recently, I feel that that pace of thing has slowed a little. And we're kind of waiting to see what the enterprise does next year in terms of the demand side. Yeah, that seems about right to me. I mean, do you think the OpenAI story is massively consequential or blip? Like, do, do you think it'll have implications on the industry at large? Yeah, I don't think it's massively consequential, I think. It could have gone a lot of different ways. And... If the core of OpenAI had ended up at Microsoft, I think that would be quite a big change. I mean, the way, the way it's kind of at time of recording is that everything went full circle and we came back to a position where OpenAI's senior management team is the same and it's going to get a kind of new upgraded board, which I think is good for OpenAI and probably reassuring for its shareholders and the, the kind of armies of companies that rely on it for their data. I mean, I think probably one of the thing you will get now more, which was already happening, but that will probably become more prominent is that companies will build in more options for their models into their software. And I think that was already happening. So if you were a company that were making an app that summarize doctors, audio notes, or something like that, right? I think already companies were designing their software so that they could switch out whatever GPT model they were using and switch in Claude or one of Cohere's models instead. And I think you'll probably get more and more of that. People in tech like to describe it as optionality, but (laughs) that's a kind of slightly horrendous word. But I think you'll get more of that. I I think you'll get more of that both at the startup level and at kind of a CIO level where bigger companies are building their own software. As we close out, what are the trends that people ought to be thinking about that they probably aren't? I mean, what are the blind spots within all of this? Where should people be giving more thought to the world of AI? And what are the stories that you feel like aren't getting told well enough? I think more broadly in the general economy, one of the things people probably don't appreciate about AI is that 
if you're a company and you want to be kind of serious about AI, you need to, it's, it's kind of saying the obvious, but you, you need to be very serious about data and you need to have your kind of data structure and governance and management all in place. And you need to be doing that kind of in a professional way because otherwise you basically run into immediate problems. I mean, I spoke to one company that was playing with one of these AI tools. It's a kind of internal AI tool and they basically use it for advanced search within their own company's databases. And they kind of quite quickly discovered that because they weren't that proficient at data governance and data permission and things like that, they had some people randomly able to view emails of colleagues and stuff like that, which they definitely weren't supposed to be able to, or view kind of senior management documents, which they shouldn't have had access to. And so there's clearly risks, I think, for companies using AI of just thinking of it as a kind of silver bullet technology that will help. But but actually, you need to get the kind of slightly less sexy data governance stuff right first in order to be able to apply these tools. By the way, that I mean, obviously, I live that because my audience <laughs> like lives exactly this question. It's a very unsexy topic. It's like telling people that they need to have a card catalog at a library. Do you think that that's making its way into sort of the recognition of these senior executives? Or where do you think we are in the evolutionary cycle of that story? I think more and more people are slowly kind of understanding that. If you were to kind of really get to grips with that question, how much are CEOs and senior management understanding how strong the link is between kind of getting internal governance, data governance rights, and, and being able to use AI properly or to, to its be- greatest benefit. I think you have to ask you know, Snowflakes and Databricks and, and, and co, you know, what they're seeing in that area. And I think every time I've asked them about this, I think that their sense is that people are getting the message. Some industries are obviously very sophisticated and, and, and good at this, partly for regulatory reasons. So like finance and healthcare have traditionally been very good at this and have, have always thought very seriously about kind of data governance. And, and then you've got a whole bunch of industries that are kind of catching up to that mark. So yeah, I think it varies industry from industry. And I think it is kind of slowly getting there. And I think it's probably easier now than it was a few years ago. I think more and more people have, you know, data on the cloud. And that that's obviously, I think, more helpful than having kind of on-prem data structures just on, 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 on servers sitting in someone's basement. Yeah, it certainly makes for more optionality, as you described it, because you can manipulate the technology much more quickly and the infrastructure, the onboarding cost of the infrastructure is much lower. So Guy, maybe to close, I'd love to just get your sort of predictive juices flowing, which obviously is a dangerous place to be. But like, where do you see us being in a year? Given everything you know at this moment, what's the story that we're going to print in 12 months about AI and tech? And obviously, you, of course, don't know. So this is all speculative, but you see a lot. So I think there's probably one scenario. I guess basically what I think is that in a year's time, we're more likely to have seen the kind of negative side of AI and data and tech more prominently than the kind of positive side. And I guess the reason I say that is that I think it's not very hard to imagine that a year from now, there would have been a story about a very big hack or some cyber criminal turning off the national grid or something like that with the help of Llama 2 or whatever. I think that's kind of really quite, not likely, but quite possible. And that's something that would be immediately all over the press, huge amounts of attention. And at the same time, the kind of positive side of AI is a kind of slow march towards higher productivity amongst really big companies. And I think that will basically take place mostly behind closed doors with some 
promotion of, you know, don't we have this WYSI AI tool doing this? But I think the really kind of cool, sophisticated stuff we basically won't know about for a while because it's not in any company's interest if they've built a kind of very clever way to boost their productivity through whatever it is. Have they managed to cut out 80% of their meetings because they can just summarize stuff much more easily and their workers are all more productive. If you can do that, then you're not actually really going to, I don't think you're really going to show off about it because then all your rivals will do will do exactly the same thing and, and, and your advantage then becomes null. So, I mean, my, my best guess is that you'll probably hear a lot more about the kind of negative side of AI than you will the positive side. The other thing to think about for next year is that we have an enormous number of elections obviously coming up, obviously including a presidential election in America. But I think the stat is that next year for the first time, more than half the world will be eligible to vote in an election, which I think is the first time that's happened. And you have this immediately at the kind of same point at which the cost of producing misinformation has kind of plummeted. And so that is something that we'll probably hear a lot more about next year. I don't really have a sense as to whether AI will actually have a big effect on what voters think. I think it basically probably doesn't have that big effect. But I think you'll hear a lot about misinformation as well as the other bad stuff that you'll hear about AI. Yeah. Um, so be on the lookout for catastrophic stories because on some sense of it bleeds, it leads. And there may be some positive stuff, but we probably won't hear about very much of it. So keep your head up and soldier on, as it were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. That's incredibly depressing. A friend of mine wrote a blog and basically it was like, don't let pessimism get in the way of, of the truth, which is, you know, just like there's so much bad news out there. And I think we get media all the time. And so there's all this anxiety and, and you know, it mostly is the bad stuff that gets covered. And therefore, that's what people think about. On the other hand, there is a lot of good stuff happening and we don't hear about that as, as often. And I think there's a bias there just through kind of how news is constructed. So it makes sense. I think that's completely right. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time. This was, as expected, a fabulous conversation. And I was very hesitant about coming on because, you know, didn't think it would be that interesting. And I think we've now proven that to be completely unfounded. So great to have you on the call uh, or on the podcast. And thank you for taking the time. And we'll need to get you back on in about a year to, to see if uh, any of this came to your fruition. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, I'd be delighted to, to come back and <laughs> test predictions in a year's time to see how it's all evolved. I'd love to do that. So actually, thank you so much. It's been a, a really fun conversation for me. So I very much appreciate it. Awesome. Till then. It's an exciting time for generative AI. We have a surplus of new AI tools, models, and capabilities, but there's still so much that we don't know about how they will be used and what their impact will be. With all of this investment, traditional skills like fact-checking are more critical than ever to ensure that the predictions and the technology are correct. People like Guy are on the front lines of telling this story. He notes that while AI affords immeasurable opportunities, there are areas that are at risk for misuse, like cybercrime and the erosion of trust in communication channels that we've previously used every single day. Guy also stresses that AI shouldn't be used as a silver bullet, but rather, companies need to focus on the unsexy parts, like data governance and structure, when adopting AI. So, when implementing new tech into your strategies, the routine bits are just as important as the exciting features. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Guy for joining today. I'm Satyan Sangani, CEO of Alation. Data Radicals, keep learning and sharing. Until next time. 
This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Your entire business community uses data, not just your data experts. Learn how to build a village of stakeholders throughout your organization to launch a data governance program and find out how a data catalog can accelerate adoption. Watch the on-demand webinar titled Data Governance Takes a Village at alation.com slash village. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N dot com slash village.